Hello and welcome to another episode of What's That Noise, the podcast that pursues matters of confusion and clarity, however and whatever that means. It is so great to be back, and I am so excited to kick off our continuation of our podcast, despite the long hiatus, with Professor Samer Abud, an old friend and dear colleague who has a lot to say about language. I am so excited to get going. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. First and foremost, thank you so much for your patience. It has been a wildly, wildly busy but exceptionally great calendar year for us thus far. Between my dear co-host and I, we've been working on so many things. Publications, grants, fellowship applications, separate book projects, we've attended conferences, I've been preparing for my wedding in August and my bachelor party in May, and our dear friend Derek just got married in Mexico. I am so, so happy for you, my friend. On behalf of the listeners, congratulations to you and your beautiful wife, Allie. I cannot wait to actually sit down with you again and talk about your wonderful, wonderful trip. Now that the term is done, we're getting back on track. I've dug up an older interview from Germany that I'm really excited to share with you in the next few weeks. And I've also done a few interviews recently to queue up for bi-weekly episode releases once again moving forward. And we begin with Samer Aboud. Dr. Aboud is an associate professor of global interdisciplinary studies at Villanova University, which is just northwest of the always sunny Philadelphia, USA. He is also a co-coordinator of the Beirut School of Critical Security Studies Working Group of the Arab Council for the Social Sciences, and as a former visiting scholar at the Carnegie Middle East Center, where he focused on the political economy of the Syrian conflict. Many of you are going to recognize his voice from his seemingly endless list of media appearances. Samer has been on HuffPost Live, CCTV America, Jefferson Public Radio, Radio France, and Al Jazeera English, as well as Al Jazeera America. I'm not even going to attempt to get into his long list of publications, but they do include works in critical studies on security, Middle East policy, and the humbling and truly thought-provoking book, Rethinking Hezbollah, which is co-authored by our dear friend Dr. Muller. Samer also recently released the second edition of his solo book, Syria, which you can find with Polity Press at Cambridge. I've known Samber for a number of years, but I haven't seen him in many. I first met him via our dear friend Professor Muller when he gave an invigorating and truly eye-opening guest talk at King's University College just a little over a decade ago about American drone planes above the Middle East. Samer has been, obviously, quite a busy scholar, which is why I was so excited to see him again very recently at the International Studies Association Annual Convention in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Just before he attended a roundtable that I was participating in with many of our mutual friends and colleagues, we talked a little bit, 
and it was interesting that one of the first things that came up, if only implicitly, was something about language. I don't remember entirely what, but we got to revisit this afterwards when we went out for dinner. We didn't talk about the Middle East or privacy. We talked about communicating. I totally wasn't expecting this, and it was so invigorating. Because Samer's research, interests, and his passions for travel brings him to so many places in the world, and especially the Arabic-speaking world, such as Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and Morocco, I became immediately curious. A lot of questions came up for me. For example, is he generally well understood when speaking Arabic in the Arabic-speaking world? Does he encounter issues near Philadelphia or back home in Canada? Does he switch languages often, and does it hurt his brain as much as it hurt mine when I was attempting to reconnect with my lousy German last summer? We eventually got into some conversation about academic language as well, and I think that you're really going to enjoy this, at least as much as I have. To me, Samer is a master of language. He's not going to present himself that way, but he is truly an interdisciplinary scholar, which says a lot to me. Because as far as I'm concerned, to be a successful interdisciplinary scholar, you need to think about language, and you need to do it often. Samer also happens to be bilingual, maybe even multilingual. I'll have to double check with him on that. But he at least speaks French, English, and Arabic very well. Samer's story begins here in Canada. Uh, I was born and raised in Ottawa, spoke Arabic at home, uh, spent first, um, you know, from K to six going to Arabic school on Sundays, and then was not kind of formally trained in the language until university. So I have this kind of weird relationship to the language where I really understand it and uh, I can function in it, uh, but I have a very strong dialect. You know, I have the the dialect of my parents, uh, and because I was not raised watching anything other than Lebanese and Syrian movies, other Arabic dialects are are pretty difficult for me and pretty foreign to me. So, um, <clears throat> you know, when I became an adult and started doing my research in Syria and then traveling around the region, I could get by. It's a lot easier for me to be in Morocco than it, or Jordan, especially Jordan. But uh, it, it's easier for me to be in Morocco than. Germany or Portugal or, or any other place where I, where I don't speak the language. But there are all these kind of um, uh, mismatches, I think, between my dialect and also my understanding of Arabic because it's, it's very incomplete. You know, I'm a heritage speaker who had training up until, you know, once a week training until I was whatever, 12, and then stopped and you know, picked it up again at 20 and then stopped and picked it up again and then and so on and so on. So there are all these kind of gaps um, in my understanding of the language. Yeah. This is really fascinating. I, I think a lot of people, a lot of our listeners who are fluent in other languages or have, have traveled professionally, personally, and have talked to people um, who don't speak their native language recognize that there are all sorts of different dialects. But people, for example, are often surprised when I tell them, after I did this fellowship in Germany, you know, there's like 65 different dialects yeah. of German. Whoa, whoa, what the hell do you mean? Yeah. And I try to give some examples. Mm. And um, I think it's really helpful when I try to say like uh, one phrase in German and try it in a different dialect, even though I can't really mm. do it that properly. I'm wondering, mm. um, have you traveled somewhere in the world where you used Arabic and you were surprised that 
it was picked up so cleanly? Yeah. So my wife is Moroccan and uh, the <clears throat> the Levantine prejudice of North Africans is that they don't, I mean, I, I don't, I don't accept this, but the, the prejudice is that they, you know, they don't speak Arabic, uh, which is silly because we all speak Arabic just with different dialects. But, but uh, the Moroccan dialect is a challenging dialect for people who we're not trained in in Moroccan Arabic. And so I thought, you know, Morocco is going to be impossible. It's going to be so difficult. Um, uh, you know, I'm going to have to kind of communicate in French. Uh, but every time I've gone there, especially when I've been in the cities, I've been able to communicate um, really cleanly with people, whether it's in the taxi, even uh, doing research at the National Archives, I was able to communicate what my needs were, what <laughs> I was looking for, and all of our communication happened in Arabic. And so I, I, this summer when we were there for a month, I kind of had a swagger. You know, I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> they understand me, I understand them. Uh, and then we took this wonderful trip uh, in the car with, with our children to the Atlas Mountains, uh, stopped on the side of the road to have chicken. You know, we we're having kind of grilled chicken and I couldn't order chicken. And it was amazing to me. I started using my, uh, started saying jizz. That's the way I say it in my dialect. And then I started saying it in some kind of like classical jizz. And, you know, I started like all sorts of trying to cut out the vowels, which is how I hear Moroccan as kind of not having vowels. Uh, and I started, you know, clucking my arms and I just, the, the person just didn't understand me until my six-year-old son who doesn't speak any Arabic said, ask them if they have kefta. And the man said, kefta, yes, we have kefta, you know, and then, and then we could resume our conversation. Uh, so, and, and that's actually not uncommon, even in Syria, when I was doing my research, uh, I was mostly based in Damascus. Uh, as I got out of Damascus, I had more and more difficulty, there was more, it was more challenging for me uh, to do research in Aleppo, um, um, a lot of the vocabulary was very uh, different for me. And even in Lebanon, Lebanon's a really small country, uh, very, very small country. But there are people from the south whose dialects are, are completely incomprehensible to me. Uh, and and so it's it's not just within the the Arab world where you have these kind of you know I was walking about around Rabat like thinking oh this is great <laughs> I, I'm so good at Arab I, I understand them they understand me but uh, uh, in the end. Um, you know, this experience in the mountains reminded me of how how grounded our dialects are and how tough it is even within a country to kind of understand each other. We're talking about some pretty significant differences um, in, in, in distance, right? So to, to grow up in Ottawa, um, to be in Syria quite a bit, to be in Lebanon speaking Arabic and then go to Morocco and have these kind of problems, but you don't necessarily have to go that far in order to run into these sort of problems. Like I'm sure yeah. you could, for example, bump into somebody in Ottawa yep. who's not from the same part of the Arab-speaking world and and have difficulties. But oh, um, can absolutely. you can you give yeah. us like an anecdote of of like the least amount of distance you've had to travel before you ran into a significant problem with dialectics? Oh, that's or a, a dialect. I mean, that's a really um, that's a really good question. So uh, we often, I think, a lot of people who come from immigrant communities. Uh, I don't think we as Arabs are special or different in this respect, but um, I think that a lot of our conversations begin in Arabic. And, and this is 
something that's really interesting to me. So in Ottawa, the the kind of default dialect is Lebanese, in the sense that Lebanese and Syrians were, or kind of Lebanese Syrian dialect have have been there for a long time, for generations, uh, and it's only <clears throat> in the last say thirty forty years where we have seen. Uh, large influxes of Arabs from other countries who have radically different dialects. So I noticed in Ottawa and other places in Canada, you kind of, where you see somebody who's Arab or who has an Arabic name and you kind of, or you know them and you start speaking Arabic and, and really the conversation doesn't have a lot of endurance in a way, you know, yeah, right. I mean, if you meet somebody from Somalia, for example, who speaks Arabic or somebody from Sudan or somebody from Algeria, I mean, I, in my entire life, I can't think of a, a, a two sentence conversation I've had with an Algerian because the dialect is very difficult for me. And so you start out, you know, like, where does this person stand on my <laughs> spectrum of, of understanding? Sure. And that happens quite often. You know, you go into places and you say, yeah, hey, you know, hi, good morning. How are you? Can I have some, you know, can I have a coffee? Can I have, you know, a kilo of meat or whatever? And then, and then you see where the conversation goes from there. And so a lot of conversations for me in Ottawa, where I'm from, uh, get cut off at a certain point based on the person, like kind of our, the proximity of our dialects, um, which, you know, happens quite, it even happens uh, for me professionally a lot. So when I today, oh, you meet Arab scholars, you start saying hello, good morning, how are you, how's your family, and then the the conversation kind of goes on until we can't understand each other, and then we and then we go back to English, or or we go or we start switching. So today I I was speaking in Arabic to somebody, and I didn't want to bother to stop and try to remember the word for panel. So I just said panel, you know, so we get into that, like the, then, the, then you get into kind of Ingebic and whatever, yeah, and, okay. yeah or, or French and Arabic, whatever. So I, I lived in North Toronto for a while. I was doing my PhD and I, I was living um, around a Persian and a Kurdish community. Mm. And something that was really fascinating for me was that when people were speaking Farsi, there seemed to be a lot of French like saying mm. bonjour, mm. merci, instead of whatever the, mm. the, the equivalent mm. might be in, mm. in Farsi or Kurdish. Mm. Do you encounter that in Arabic? Do you, yes. Are there dialects that have words yes. from French or some other yes. colonial influence? So uh, for anybody out there who has met any Lebanese person, regardless of social class or geography, this is how a lot of Lebanese people speak. Uh, they throw in words uh, here and there from English, from French. Uh, there are even, um, uh, they've even commodified this by coming up with mugs and t-shirts that say, Kifak Sava, how are you? Like they bring in the three <laughs> languages because that's how people greet each other. Uh, and and so, I, but I did not grow up in a house like that. I grew up in a house where Arabic was, was spoken. It was very important. And my parents did not and my uh, thinking of it, you know, my broader community did not kind of do this thing of throwing in mm -hmm. words and whatever. It was actually not until I was an adult and started going to Lebanon by myself as an adult, as a researcher, where I, I noticed uh, a lot of these patterns. Right. I, I mean, I, I became more aware of them, whether they were happening when I was younger. I don't know. Um, you do see it a lot. Uh, I think in this generation, I have cousins who will speak to me exclusively in Arabic 
and never throw in uh, a French or an English word. And I have cousins that, I mean, they're siblings where they do that. You know, they'll, they'll throw in. I think there's a kind of just a style of communicating, a way of communicating. Um, in Arabic is, I've noticed as, because I go every year, I've been going every year since 2002 or three or something like that. And one of the things that I find really interesting is the language and is constant. I mean, of course, it's a silly thing to say that language is constantly evolving, but there are so many different, in that period that I've been going, there are so many different ways in which people in Lebanon and Syria have said, thank you, you're welcome. You know, these basic yeah, words right. that, and, and I was saying to somebody one day that I've only ever known one way to say thank you in English, but there are all sorts of ways. And it seems that people pick up on, um, uh, you know, certain usages become more common in certain periods and others. And I think it's the same with this kind of throwing in words and whatever. Uh, Morocco was interesting to me because my wife does not speak Arabic, but speaks French. And so we, um, in her family, they speak uh, predominantly in French. And they're very, it's, they don't throw words in. They might switch in sentences, but not this like, uh, you know, can you please, you know, not this bonjour, like, you know, yeah, none of that. Right. It's, it's actually they're communicating to each other. They're making sense of the world and communicating that to each other in uh, French. And uh, some of her cousins that don't speak to their children in Arabic or they speak to their children oh, in see. Arabic and they don't go, oh, go to school. So the, yeah. the language politics in Morocco um, are, are very interesting, even though there has been this kind of, uh, you know, uh, Arabization campaign, you know, that everyone has to speak Arabic and learn Arabic, that there's still um, like there's kind of social dynamics that push people, I think, into uh, speaking speaking French like as the language mm -hmm. of communication, whereas I think in other places like Lebanon, Syria, maybe you know, in the case of these communities in Toronto, that it's just like peppering, you know, the the, <laughs> the language here. And there. Like it, it, in Lebanon, Syria, many people are bilingual or trilingual, but it, they they don't necessarily communicate with. Family yeah, so that's or, a really really interesting thing to think about because most people I grew up with. Um, that, that look like me and were trained in the same school system as me. We only ever really thought about getting by in the future as adults with one language. Okay, mm. so maybe we have to go and learn something like French, right? Mm. So bilingualism in Canada is obviously really important. Yeah. And we are sort of introduced to this importance when we're, we're children. But for the same folk who, who never traveled, for example, never mm. went to Europe, it's kind of surprising to hear that, wow, you're, you're learning like three and four languages as a child. When, yeah. when you go to Morocco and some of the other um, Arab speaking countries that you've been to, is this, is this a norm as well that children have to learn at least native language plus at least one more? Yeah, I think most people are functionally, a lot of people that I know are functionally bilingual, if not trilingual. So one of my Moroccan colleagues who functions academically in Arabic and French, we were trying to organize uh, a workshop in Morocco and he insisted that it be in English. And I refused, ah. even though it's I don't it's very difficult for me to function academically in Arabic. So it was this interesting fight. <laughs> that we, and his argument was that it was ben, it was more beneficial to Moroccan scholars to be forced into speaking English and to thinking academically in English. And I said, no, I, I want to function academically in Arabic. And it was an interesting kind of uh, argument uh, in there's a class dimension to this. Of course, the the 
the central dimension is the colonial one. I mean, the extent to which the colonial powers in the region were able to kind of decimate the education systems and centralize French or English or whatever, uh, particularly French, um, as the main language of communication. So in, Nor in North Africa, uh, when, when the French, uh, during the period of decolonization, Arabic was not really taught in the schools. Hmm. I mean, it was taught in the mosques. It was is not really taught in the schools. And so the, the way the language developed is that French was the language in schools and of commerce and of politics and that and whatnot. Uh, and Arabic was something that you spoke at home or, or in the mosque. And so uh, you have a lot of these, um, uh, this especially in North Africa. So I think North Africans are... are functionally bilingual, if not, if not trilingual. In Syria, um, there was a real effort to eliminate the remnants of French influence. And so the best schools in Syria were not, you know, historically the, the French schools. They were Arabic schools. So Syria still taught math and Arabic and taught medicine and Arabic. And in Lebanon, they didn't do that. And so de de depending... Uh, on your class, your access to certain schools. So in Lebanon, my parents were not bilingual. They only spoke Arabic. They didn't learn French. They didn't learn, even though my dad went to a, my dad went to a Protestant school for a few years. Um, you know, they learn a bit of English here and there, but they don't speak it outside of the school. So they're really interesting. Fascinating. Like, yeah. So my parents, uh, their English was kind of I mean, they had a basis for it when they came to Canada, but they weren't bilingual by any means. Uh, whereas, you know, in Libya, for example, I'm not sure how many Libyans are speaking Italian. You know, I don't know, like, the extent to which Italian yeah, right. is, but I'm fairly certain it's zero. I mean, it's not taught in the, in the public schools. So um, I think that it was part of many people's lives, but... Um, Certainly in terms of someone's social mobility, like in the case in Lebanon, in Syria, if you were, if you did speak French or, or English, since you were a bit more uh, mobile, like my, uh, my family tells me a lot of stories about how language was used to, uh, for people to um, differentiate themselves. So it was uh, expressive of class dynamics, of geographic um, yeah. identities and uh, but yeah, I mean, in Morocco, you you have three official languages in Morocco, Amazigh, uh, Arabic, French. So all official documentation is in three language signs. I mean, it's there's so much text on the highway signs that you need two of them. <laughs> like you can't have one <laughs> sign with the same with all three. I mean, imagine, you know, in Canada, I know I know here people complain about the French and they oh, you know, I, I remember these things from when I was younger, when when the, this policy was kind of manifesting itself in stop signs and all these things. People would complain all the time about two. Well, imagine three. And they're written differently. They're three different, you know, one is, uh, I mean, Amazigh is an entirely different language. I can read French. You can't read uh, Amazigh. And so they're, they don't even look the same. It's like three completely different uh, languages. You, you had a really interesting point there. I, and what I'm thinking about uh, a little bit more deeply now as a, as a result of it is how language can be used to represent ourselves and to chalk out identities and different kinds of cultural mm -hmm. expressions. So we're at the International Studies Association convention in Toronto and um, we've been attending panels all week <laughs> and I was on one yesterday that I found really, really challenging. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't because that 
panel's participants were speaking different languages. They were all mm. speaking English, but mm. they felt like they were speaking different languages mm. because one one dis, you know mm. one one participant was uh, highly trained in a very specific uh, modality of political theory, mm. and another one was trained in a very very specific <laughs> school of critical cultural theory, mm. Mm. and another one was like mainstream international relations scholar. And this makes perfect sense to us. Yeah. For most of our listeners, they're gonna have no freaking yeah. idea what we're yeah, talking yeah, about. That yeah, doesn't yeah. matter. But yeah. they were all speaking English. Yeah. But the academic language was so different. Yeah. And just for the sake of variety, I mean, the, yeah. the one of the, the clearest presenters yesterday on this panel was uh, a German speaker. <laughs> and, and it made me wonder, like, how yeah. is this possible? Yeah. Is it really just that they try to command English so yeah. much? They invest so much time. Yeah. Maybe it's the way they were trained to yeah. think about using English. But then I wonder, yeah. like, how how is it that learning different languages might help you as a scholar to articulate more clearly? That's a really great question. I think that my, it's interesting to say that because it's interesting to think this, let alone say it. Um, I feel as somebody who grew up in an Arabic speaking, predominantly Arabic speaking home in an immigrant family that I have a lot of anxiety and insecurity about language. And I think that uh, a lot of academics in my, so they're, you know, I'm the classic, I can say, I can write the word, I can't say it, or I say it uh, in a strange, so it's, I, I'm, I'm saying this uh, as a preface to my larger point that there is something about feeling like my vocabulary is uh, larger right. uh, and uh, that I have a different sense of the word of the world through through particular words. So today in our panel, the this person was making a point about wasta in the Arabic world, and he was really desperately trying to stress its importance to a bunch of people who've never heard the word. But I really understood it. I didn't agree with the point that he was making, but I understood. Like I I understood this thing of wasta and, and, and what it meant. And, uh, but, but I do think academically it's, um, I mean, it means I'm a, means I feel like I'm a bit more open to language and, and like, I sort of understand if, if somebody says, well, you know, in our language we say this and oh, okay, you know, like I'm kind of used <laughs> to that. Um, uh, yeah, I, I that's, a, I have to think about that actually a bit more. I, I hope we, yeah, it's, it's a, a really, really interesting good, reflection. Yeah, yeah. Somebody somebody told me in the summer while I was doing my fellowship mm. that, you know, learning different languages radically changes the chemistry and the neuronal yeah. network of the brain. Yeah. How you think about the world and yeah. how you, uh, for example, organize the different subjects and objects that you want to analyze as a professional yeah. change yeah. because of the kind of language that you're using. Yeah. And so... I, I've read a bunch of your work over yeah. the years, and I, I love it for being you yeah. know, being remarkably clear. Thank I don't know you. that that writing with Dr. Mueller particularly no, helps never. that. No, no, no. I I have to make him clear. Yeah. <laughs> He's sitting right beside <laughs> us too. By the way, <laughs> for those who are listening, uh, that that you know that's interesting. I uh, I've been reflecting a lot on my writing recently, and one of the things that I've realized about myself is that I I wrote for myself. I've been writing for myself to help me make sense of what I was seeing. Mm. And I think that in the process of doing that, I, I wasn't thinking as much about my audience as I would have liked. So I was, I was writing, I was trying to make things clear because they weren't clear to me. Uh, and so I really appreciate that because I think that, 
accessibility is important for me. Um, uh, that said, I am trying to actually shift the way that I write, not to be convoluted and whatever. That's not, but I, I want to write with my audience in mind or with, um, let me put it a different way. I want, um, I don't want to be the only person to read what I write. I know other people read what I write, but I think that part of my insecurities, I mean, we're, all, we're academics, we all have these kind of insecurities. I think that it, it, prohibit, it prohibited me from writing in a way that um, I maybe wanted to write. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I, my focus has always been on kind of clarity, but if that makes sense, right? Yeah. Then I, I, I appreciate and I, I desire to be that, like, I want to be the kind of writer who people say that stuff about, that I, I read this and I understood it. This, this was accessible to me. That's the kind of writer I want to be. I want to be able to share my ideas. I want uh, people from uh, a range of different backgrounds to be able to read what I'm writing and understand it. But I, I realized that I, it was a very internal process for me, that I was just writing for myself in a way, uh, selfishly. And now I want to think about... Um, how to write with a with a particular audience mm -hmm. in mind or um, kind of in a different way. Yeah. I have a, a question mm. for you that I, I think will be really helpful for uh, drilling down on some mm. good advice for some of the, the younger listeners, especially aspiring academics, because the question of what kind of audience to write to mm. um, comes after figuring out what that audience uh, needs to be, what field. Mm. Um, their, their level of comprehension of certain subject matter and certain topics and so on and so forth. Mm. How important is it that do you think for the next generation of scholarship to be writing as clearly as possible? Because I, I'm sort of imagining that the project of trying to write clearly mm. opens up the number of different kinds of scholars that could be reading the material. Yeah. So that's not really yeah. about just one kind of audience then, right? Yeah. It's a bunch of different yeah. kinds of audiences at the same time. Yeah. But yeah. this comes with the caveat, obviously yeah. that, um, you, I, I, at least I think you, that you might lose some sort of sophistication within yeah. certain subcultures yeah. in the academy yeah. because there's certain styles of writing, like yeah. I was talking about no, earlier, course, that are just yeah. so yeah. hard to access, yeah. like reading Heidegger. Yeah. You know? um, I certainly don't mean to say this uh, in a kind of judgmental way or in a negative way, but I think that the academy is a very plural space and it's a very... Uh, it has many, <laughs> many options and varieties. And I think that there is a place for the complicated Heidegger, uh, you know, conversation. <laughs> I, I, I totally believe that. I think that there, there needs to be these kinds of discussions. But um, for the last uh, eight, nine years of my life, I've been in an interdisciplinary department. Uh, the last lecture that I went to at my university was called uh, Black Hair After Emancipation, that I just function and teach and think in a very interdisciplinary way. And for me, that it, doing that requires that the material I'm reading is accessible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. So I yeah. um, I have been reading a lot of of history lately and i've been uh, one of my colleagues just wrote this excellent book called tides of revolution about uh communication around the haitian revolution so how did people communicate what was happening around this period it's a fascinating book that i know nothing about 
Like I know nothing about this topic, uh, but yet it's written in such a kind of substantive, sophisticated, but accessible way that I can make sense of it. And I think that to me is really important. Uh, I think um, that we should be reading across different disciplines. I think that's very important. I mean, I'm invested in that because of yeah. the, I'm in a global yeah, studies right. department. I wasn't in international studies department. Uh, so I'm very invested in that professionally, but I think that for helping us think about the world, uh, it's important to be going to these different uh, different ideas, um, different texts, uh, thinking of texts as widely as we possibly can. Like, um, uh, and and the only way that we can do that is that if it makes sense to us. Like, if I can read a history of, you know, Venezuela in the eighteen hundreds or something like that, and I I think that's that's really important. Um, and I would like to see the uh, us as academics become more plural in, you know, what we what we read, what we get interested in, uh, and and I think that with that comes a kind of accessibility, you know, like this kind of German who's speaking the English that you understand when they're because he's not talking about yeah yeah he's too, not talking yeah. about what and again I'm not I'm I'm not that's not a critique of that I think that's very mm -hmm. important I think that's um, we need that but. Just my approach to this is to uh, kind of be radically open to anything that is interesting and provocative and uh, gets the hamster going in my brain. You know, it's so always I, important to see yeah, that yeah, hamster. Yeah. If it falls off the wheel, I think <laughs> exactly. we're in trouble. Yeah, it's too easy on my end. Yeah. <laughs> Sam, thank you so much for your thank time. Thank you for I, this conversation. Yeah. This is really wonderful. I have thank a lot you. to think about. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot. Yeah. Uh, it's much shorter than I would have liked. So. We'll, we'll use this as a, a good way to set up for next time we yeah. talk. Round two. That's, uh, you know, I guess we'll mosey on and get ready for another finish. <laughs> Thanks so <laughs> Thank much. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks for checking out another episode of What's That Noise? If you haven't done so already, please give us a follow at WTNCast. You can follow me at data data data. Or you can follow and file complaints at Derek Krim. Follow us on Google Play Music and of course on iTunes. And until next time, our friends, keep leaning into the noise.